The first reading can be found on page 1234 in the Pew Bibles. It is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. That's on page 1234. Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. To the church in Pergamon, to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Our second reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, beginning at chapter 1, which is on page 1168. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, and then over the page onto chapter 4. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And then over the page onto chapter 4, verse 8, Paul continues. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you could be turning back, please, to Revelation chapter 2 on page 1234. It would greatly encourage me if you had your Bibles open as we go through this passage. Uh, Thank you so much for your prayers for Charles. Uh, He's actually um, uh, on a kind of three-day trip to Belgrade, and on Friday he spoke to 60 pastors from all over Serbia. We all know that Serbia has a very troubled history, and uh, it was a great privilege for him to be able to speak to all those pastors um, from different parts of the church. Uh, Let's pray uh, before we start. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray now that you would speak to each one of us in all our different situations, that we may hear the words of Jesus 
to us today and that we may obey what he says. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, um, after a couple of Sundays away, today we're coming back to um, our sermon series on the book of Revelation. And as with all of scripture, it has a great deal to teach us. We're in the middle of a study of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the words of Jesus to the seven churches, all of which were situated in what was called Asia, modern-day Turkey. And Leon Morris, in his commentary, helpfully points out a pattern to each of these seven messages. First of all, there's a greeting. Then there's a title of the risen Christ. Then there's a section on what is good, uh, though not the Laodicean church. There was nothing good about it. Then there's often a criticism or a challenge, though not for two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, a warning, an exhortation, and a promise. And that pattern goes through each of these um, uh, messages. Uh, Incidentally, you will remember that in our intentional discipleship program, and details of that are over on the board over there, uh, we uh, suggest that you have a build up a library of good Christian books. And one of the things we talk about are commentaries, which help us to go through the Bible and pick up the difficult bits. And I may tell you for this sermon, I have had to uh, consult a number of commentaries because there's some quite obscure things in it. But can I recommend this book? Uh, It's by Leon Morris. It's from the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, and it's just on the book of Revelation. Uh, Do buy it because you will probably use it quite a bit over the next few months. Um, Now, John Piper, uh, in a sermon in February 1994, was talking about this passage, and he says that when Jesus warns these churches, these are merciful warnings to wake the churches up. They're all mixed. Nearly all of these churches are mixed, some good in them, some bad. Um, But some of them are so bad that their very existence is threatened. And I think it's sobering for us to realize that not one of the seven churches exists today. So let's turn to the church at Pergamum. Uh, What about the place itself? It was important for a number of things. It was an administrative center built on a hill about 15 miles inland in central Turkey. About uh, 133 BC, it became capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a center of culture with a library of, wait for it, some 200,000 parchment scrolls. And indeed, we get our word parchment from that word Pergamon. That library was second only to the great library in Alexandria in Egypt. So it was an administrative center, a center of culture, and it was a religious center, a center of a Greek worship. People came from all over to be healed at the shrine of the Greek god Asclepius, who was known as the lords of the ancient world. And beside that, there were many heathen temples. But above all, it was a center for Caesar worship. It was the principal center of the imperial cult in this part of the world. People were required on pain of death to call Caesar Lord. And as one commentator has said to a Christian, nothing could be more satanic than to call somebody else Lord other than Christ. And uh, Michael Wilcox says about this, all this paraphernalia of an alternative society catering for mind, body, and spirit is added to the overt demands of the Roman state. In brief, Satan is working here through the pressures of non-Christian society. I think that sounds quite modern to you and me, actually. 
So that's the place. What about the message? Well, once again, it comes from Jesus, who is here described in verse 12 as him who has this sharp, double-edged sword. Now, when I first read that, I thought of the words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the word of God, like a sword. Or in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're meant to be thinking here about the word of God. But in addition, when scripture talks about the sword, it often symbolizes the judgment of war. And as we will see later, Jesus threatens to make war against the unrepentant false teachers who are corrupting his church. Jesus feels very strongly about those who would bring false teaching into his church. And in a city as devoted to the Romans as Pergamon was, whose proconsul had the power to put people to death, here is a reminder that there is one whose power is greater than that of any earthly governor. It's no different for us. The one who speaks to us today as he spoke to Pergamon is the one who wields the sword of life and death and whose words can cut through to our heart. So we do well to pay careful attention to what he has to say. Now here Jesus gives two commendations, two words of condemnation, and then a promise at the end. Let's look at the two commendations first, things that Jesus knows about them. Look at verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So Jesus starts with his knowledge of their situation. I know where you live. And the Greek word that's translated live has the sense of permanence about it. This is where the people had to stay despite the pressures they were under. How does, Satan, how does Jesus describe it? Verse 13, where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. In other words, the power of Satan is very great in this city. He has his throne there. He apparently reigns there. He's around all the time. I wonder what Jesus would say to you and me. I know the office that you work in. I know the prevailing culture in your company. I know the temptations put across your path. We will all have temptations at work, whether our work is in the office or at home, looking after small children. Some of the temptations are more obvious than others. Like the businessman I know, who when doing business abroad, was expected as part of receiving hospitality to use the services of a prostitute that they provided. He absolutely refused, he's a very strong Christian, despite the fact it could have jeopardized the deal. But the pressures were great. Or maybe Jesus says, I know what your family or your friends are like. I know know the pressure they put on you to be less fanatical, as they call it, in your service of Christ, and to visit them instead of coming to church on Sundays. Or maybe he says, I know what your marriage is like. I know how you struggle with a wife or a husband who does not value you. 
You see, the temptations Satan puts across our path are totally varied and totally geared to affect us where we are most vulnerable. Maybe for us, it's mainly the general struggle of living in a country which is so secular that even to say you've been to church is considered a cause of laughter or mockery. A few weekends ago, Charles and I were speaking at a church weekend, and uh, a wonderful young mother came up there. Uh, She had a young baby, and she told us her story of how she'd recently become a Christian. And it was quite remarkable. She was sitting in her garden one day, and she just had this sense. She didn't have a vision, but she had this sense that she needed to go to church the next day. And in the pub that evening with her husband and with her friends, she said, I'm going to church tomorrow. And she said the mockery that she had simply for saying that was absolutely incredible. She's a shining light. I would love you all to have heard her. Her husband is not yet a Christian, but she's praying very hard for him. There is just the general struggle of living in a country where you're mocked simply for saying that you're going to church. So Jesus tells these people he knows all about their situation and he commends them for two things. First of all, they remain true to his name despite all the pressures Satan was throwing at them. They did not give in to temptation. And secondly, they did not renounce their faith in Christ despite the possibility of terrible persecution. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Now, we don't know a great deal about Antipas, but what we do know is that he was the first martyr of Asia, who, according to legend, wait for this, was slowly roasted to death in a bronze pan in the time of the Emperor Domitian. Domitian was one of the most cruel and sadistic of all the Roman emperors. And note that Antipas is given the same title, faithful witness, as Jesus is given in chapter 1, verse 5. What a temptation it must have been for those people in Pergamon to give way to fear when they saw what happened to Antipas, to renounce the name of Christ in favour of the emperor, but they did not. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are being martyred all over the world today. One charity, Open Doors, which serves persecuted Christians worldwide, states that each month an average of 322 Christians are killed for their faith, 241 churches and Christian properties are destroyed, and 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians, violence such as beatings, abductions and forced marriages. Now, those are only the things that open doors can record, have recorded, but no doubt there are many more. And actually nothing that happens here in this country can match that kind of persecution. But how do you and I stand up to the attacks we do receive? Would Jesus say that you and I remain true to his name? And maybe with the terrible events in Paris still so very fresh in our minds. Maybe the physical persecution is getting closer. You see, we see in the perpetrators of those atrocities in Paris a total clash of worldviews, a totally different view of what good is and what God requires. Jesus then moves on to two criticisms he has of the church. Because in addition to the problems from outside, there are internal issues, false teaching, the heresy in the camp, which is referred to in the title for today's sermon. 
Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says you have people who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now this refers to an incident in the Old Testament book of Numbers. The prophet Balaam, uh, the, the Balak was the king of the Moabites, but the prophet Balaam uh, had led God's people into sin. The Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who seduced them into worshipping their gods, in particular the fertility god Baal of Peor. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 25. Balaam thus became, over the centuries, a model of false teachers who would lead people into corruption. Eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality were the normal accompaniments of idol worship. So some in the church were guilty of syncretism and pick-and-mix religion. A little bit of this Christianity here, a bit of Baal there. They were compromising with worship of God alone. Also, Jesus says, you have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, very little is known about them. You will remember that they were also in the church in Ephesus, which we heard about a few weeks ago. And to quote the NIV Study Bible, these people taught that spiritual liberty gave them leeway to practice idolatry and immorality. So what the Nicolaitans were teaching was similar to the teaching of Balaam, but yet distinct. And John Piper comments, it's a teaching that somehow encourages idolatry and sexual immorality. Some in the church were promoting this, while others in the church were laying down their lives for the gospel. And has been said about both sins, this is not the enemy from outside openly seeking to destroy the faith. The false teachers claimed, and here is a quote from William Barclay, not that they were destroying Christianity. So the false teachers were saying, look, we're not destroying Christianity. But they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. We're just updating Christianity. We're just adding a little bit more here to make it more to fit in with the culture. And uh, Leon Morris, whose commentary I've recommended, says, this is the insidious fifth column, destroying from within. Now, doesn't all that seem familiar to us today? That there are within the church various heresies that have crept in? The cry is to modernize, to get with the program, to get with the culture, to leave all that old stuff behind, not to be old-fashioned. Actually, Usually, any of these heresies come down to your view of Scripture. Do you accept that the Bible is God's final authority in all matters of faith and conduct? Whether or not what it says is unpopular, whether or not you like it, whether or not it agrees with the culture. So that was what was going on. And heresy in the church in the time of Revelation was written was not new. Many of the New Testament epistles teach about how to deal with false prophets from within the church, which is why we had the reading from Galatians. 
And I hope you saw how distressed Paul was with the Christians in that church. False teachers were wanting the Christians to be circumcised. They wanted to introduce, therefore, additional requirements for justification. They were preaching that salvation is by faith and circumcision. As Paul describes it, and his wo- he does not mince his words, a different gospel, Paul says, which is actually no gospel at all. Christ criticizes the church at Pergamon for tolerating such compromise. And so all of the church at Pergamon are called to repent, but Christ's severest words are reserved for the heretics. Christ will fight against them, as he says, with the sword of my mouth. You see, the alternative to repentance is to have Christ, whose power is supreme, way above that of any emperor. The alternative to repentance is to have Christ fight against them. What a terrible thought. As it says in Hebrews 10:31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you and I have to think a bit about this. What do we tolerate? What do we tolerate even in church? Let's take one example. What about gossip and slander and negative talk? It's often thought of as lesser or, as somebody has said, respectable sins. But listen to God's words through Paul in Ephesians 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That is pretty strong words about what I'm afraid we normally think of, say, compared to sexual sin, as perhaps a little sin. That is talking about grieving the Holy Spirit when we get, when we speak with critical, negative thoughts. But then there is the promise for the overcomer, the final part of the message. It's a huge encouragement to persevere and keep going. Verse 17, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, if you're like me, you just, may just have heard that for the first time. You think, what on earth is that saying? What, how can this be encouraging? Well, Jesus promises two things, some of the hidden manna. It's like the miraculous food that God provided for the Israelites in the desert. In other words, Jesus is talking about heaven and the celestial food that is not available to the world. And what a contrast that celestial food, the hidden manna, is to idols, to the food offered to idols, which the heretics eat. And then there's the white stone with a new name written on it. Now, the meaning of the white stone is obscure. One commentator has said there are seven possible meanings of this. But some see it as like a ticket of admission, the ticket we need to get into heaven, which is, of course, faith in Christ. Only he can secure our entry there. 
So, if you like, we're given a white stone as our ticket of admission into heaven. And then there's the new name. In the ancient world, the name is not just a name that we may happen to like or dislike. The name represents the character of the person. So the Christian is a new creation, a new man or woman, and so they have a new name. And there's the fact that it's known only to the one who receives it. Leon Morris says this, For antiquity, the hidden name is precious. It meant that God had given the overcomer a new name which no one knows except himself, a little secret between him or her and God. What a wonderful promise that is for the overcomer. What is it that you have to overcome in your daily life as you try to follow Christ? Has he spoken to you about something today? If you're like me, there'll be something for all of us, in my case, a list of things that need to be overcome. And you will sense Jesus speaking to you about it on a daily basis, maybe through a comment from someone else. I had, just yesterday, a comment made by my grandson, and I knew that Jesus was rebuking me. So Granny was cross about something. I won't tell you what it was, but I felt Jesus was saying to me, Tricia, that you've got to get that right. You've got to sort that out. But, and this is the thing I want to leave us with, Jesus is by our side. He is the one who helps us be more than conquerors. Let's listen to him and obey and hear his words of commendation to us too. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these amazing words to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that your word is still relevant to us today. Lord, we've heard a bit about persecution this morning, and we thank you today for all our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted because they bear the name of Christ and they have not renounced his name. Help us to remember to hold them up in prayer and help us, too, to be faithful in the temptations that Satan brings across our path. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord Jesus, so that when at the last day we meet you and see you face to face, we too may receive your commendation, the white stone and the hidden name. We praise you. Amen.